Hey, everybody, it is time for the 7th Avenue Project. I'm Robert Polly. Thanks for joining us. Well, today on the show, a philosopher looks at racial dynamics in America. And I know that for a long time, philosophy has had very little to say about race. I mean, uh, race isn't that one of those socio-historical contingencies that philosophy doesn't concern itself with, as it focuses on deeper, more foundational questions of being, existence, metaphysics, knowledge, the mind, perception, the nature of truth itself, you know the list. Well, many contemporary thinkers, including my guest, George Yancey, now say that that rarefied stance is myopic and a dodge. Philosophy does not sit apart from and above history and culture. And race, in a racialized society like America, what well, has a kind of existential force. It frames our sense of selfhood, our identity, our experience, even our cognition in fundamental ways, ways that cry out for philosophical reinspection. Certainly for George Yancey, there was never any question but that race had that kind of weight. The racial realities of his own existence, in fact, weighed heavily against his becoming a philosopher in the first place. He grew up in the Richard Allen Homes, a low-income housing project in North Philadelphia, and to give a sense of the prospects that he faced there, he begins an autobiographical essay with this quote from James Baldwin. You were born where you were born and faced the future that you faced because you were black and for no other reason. The limits of your ambition were thus expected to be set forever. You were born into a society which spelled out with brutal clarity and in as many ways as possible that you were a worthless human being. You were not expected to aspire to excellence. You were expected to make peace with mediocrity. And George Yancey says that as a kid growing up in the projects, that message came through loud and clear. Not only philosophers, but academics didn't come out of Richard Allen projects. You didn't go on to college. If anything, you either came out with a mental diagnosis, right, of deep depression, or you were killed because during that time, the gang wars that were going on. So there was this deep existential depressed area that I, that I came out of, but I wasn't supposed to come out of there. I was supposed to, as Baldwin says, make peace with mediocrity, mm. but, I, but I didn't. And there's an anecdote in that essay about a teacher telling you you had wanted to be a pilot, and he said, well, George, there aren't many black pilots. Uh, why don't you think about being a bricklayer or a carpenter? Yeah, that's right. There's not anything wrong with obviously being a bricklayer or a carpenter. But from the perspective of this white teacher, who was supposed to nurture me and inspire me and encourage me to reach the unreachable, right? To look beyond where I am in my current life. In essence, he truncated me. He diminished my significance and he diminished my ambitions. Were there others, though, who saw in you the intellectual inquiring deep thinker that you were and, and are? Absolutely. Uh, I mean, w during that time, uh, there was another mathematics teacher who had gone to LaSalle University, and he had recognized something very extraordinary, right? So here was a black kid, you know, 17 years old, reading Bertrand Russell's The History of Western Philosophy and Will Durant's The Story of Philosophy. So I was an anomaly, to be sure. In fact, I would walk around the school asking teachers to interpret passages, you know, uh, from Plato's Republic, and they didn't know what it meant, right? So this one uh, mathematics teacher, also a white male, um, interestingly enough, suggested that I go to LaSalle University. Uh, so he introduced me to his former professor. I took that course, got an A in it, 
so yes, there were teachers. There were other teachers um, who were very much interested in this potential that they saw, this incredible, as they would say, very articulate, um, very deep and profound young black male who was exploring all these issues about the existence of God, the meaning of death, the meaning of human existence. So yes, there wasn't that single narrative, right? But there was that single narrative by the one uh, math teacher that had a very profound experience on me in terms of limiting how I saw myself as a possibility. And, and for racial reasons. And for deeply racial reasons. I mean, my suspicion is that had a uh, white student come up to him and asked him the same question, perhaps he would have been excited and then sort of you know, helped him to create a path where he could successfully become a pilot. Instead, seeing this black body through what I would later call the white gaze, that white gaze truncated and saw my existence as ontologically limited. And by that I mean my very being as black was somehow a problem. My very being as black could not aspire for anything outside of what it was meant to be, and therefore to, to only settle for something very lowly vis-a-vis being a pilot, let's say. You know, I notice um, that you use the phrase black body a lot in your writing, uh, as opposed to, say, black person. Yes. Uh, tell me about that. Sure. I think there are two reasons. Uh, one is because um, black personhood uh, is often seen as an oxymoron. So in other words, uh, if, you're, if you're a black person, in some sense to be black is to cancel out personhood. So we are subpersons if we're black. So there's a way in which I want to play on the notion of the black body as this site that has been demonized, that has been um, seen as inferior, as a subperson, as ersatz, um, as up to no good, as criminal, while at the same time I want to highlight the notion that what happens to black persons happens in their embodiment. And therefore, when I use the black body, it's not reductive. In other words, it's not the same as the way in which whites would reduce black people to their bodies. Um, I mean, keep in mind that a philosopher, uh, the philosopher uh, Hegel, for an example, thought that black people didn't have geist or spirit. So there's a way in which black bodies then become part of the terrain, we're like trees and other natural flora and fauna, so that when Europeans came to take the land, they came only to take the land because black bodies were part of that land. So I want to argue that there's a way in which to talk about black embodiment is to talk about the site of pain and suffering and joy and to talk about, uh, talk about the black body as a site of praxis or emancipation. But ultimately saying we're more than bodies. Uh, you're right. We want to say we're more than our bodies. In fact, this is what Ralph Ellison talks about when he says that I am invisible through the white gaze. In fact, I have to bump into black people in, in his text, Invisible Man, in order for them to recognize me, right? So yes, on the one hand, we are more than our bodies in the sense in which we have been defined exclusively according to our bodies or as reduced to our bodies as things. While at the same time, I want to keep focusing on the black body as a way in which to talk about really embodiment, right? So embodiment is not the reduction to the body. It's really a way of thinking about how we are in the world, how we are neither transcendent and yet not completely reduced to the body, but as it were, a kind of embodied consciousness. 
I think I probably got interested in philosophy at roughly the same age as you, maybe maybe a little bit younger, but reading some of the same books, and was partly intoxicated with the prospect of something that uh, took leave of all the messy, ordinary, daily realities of our lives and addressed the big abstract questions, the questions at the heart of it all, divorced from our physicality, from our histories, our circumstances. And, you know, surely that was was true of some of the philosophers you read when you were young. But you've brought philosophy back. I mean, you've reconnected it to all the things that philosophy uh, classically left behind. Yeah, absolutely. I think I think that as a black male, as in black as a black embodied male in the United States, which I see as a white supremacist country founded on white supremacy, to do philosophy in the abstract, to do philosophy as divorced from my own embodiment, from the embodiment of other bodies of color, um, is to in essence engage in a form of philosophical suicide. It's to do a philosophy that denies precisely the reality of my life, what is called black airlabeness or lived experience. So there's a way in which I think we have to bring philosophy back down, right, to earth. It's really using philosophy uh, similarly to, let's say, the pragmatist tradition. So at least we can speak to the pragmatists, let's say, a la John Dewey or, or William James, as sort of critiquing to this lofty notion of philosophy. But at the same time, of course, Dewey and James and Peirce fail to grapple with the issue of race. In the meantime, it was black thinkers uh, who were looking at the profound questions raised by race in America, questions of selfhood, of consciousness. I mean, it was people like Du Bois, right? And you've already mentioned Ralph Ellison and, uh, you know, and other black thinkers around the world like Franz Fanon, who you've cited a lot. There was a a strand of you know philosophical um, questioning that was kind of ignored by the establishment, I guess. Uh, but these are powerful questions, and there's nothing like race to to make one think about these issues. Mm, absolutely. I mean, so you've got people like Elaine Locke, as you you know, W. E. B. Du Bois, Angela Davis, um, Thomas Nelson Baker, who's actually the first African American to receive a Ph.D. in philosophy from Yale in 1903. Oh, really? Huh. Yeah, he was born in uh, 1860, so uh, before Emancipation Proclamation. What you have is then you have these philosophers, and this is the, the point that I, again, want to raise with regard to the black body. The black body uh, demands that uh, philosophy grapples with how it is in the world, to invoke Heidegger's phrase, how, what it means to be in the world, right? So African-American philosophy then stresses praxis or practice or liberation, because if we're not grappling with the issues that concern us, we're engaging in a kind of um, inconsequential or a a, a form of philosophy that's nugatory, that means nothing uh, in terms of how it relates to us, which, by the way, um, there is also for me an engagement of certain kinds of issues, I think, that may not directly be related, let's say, to race. For an example, um, when I think about this immense universe that we find ourselves in, right? Um, what does it mean for me to be as other beings to be in the universe? Uh, what if it's the case that God does not exist and that we're alone? Well, that is a problem. That is an existential predicament that impacts all of us, regardless of race or regardless of gender or regardless of sexual orientation. But at the same time, me as a philosopher, 
I take very personally what that could mean and the implications of that for me as an individual. And I think that's my understanding of philosophy as a site of pain, as a site of suffering. Because for me, when I think about the possibility that we are the only uh, self-conscious beings in the universe, I think about being alone and the angst that that causes, right? The sense of uh, meaninglessness and that there is no, there are no ultimate an- answers to which we have access in terms of helping to explain who we are and what we are. Um, you started reading philosophy in your teens and it was people like Plato and you said Bertrand Russell. You went to Pittsburgh, the University of Pittsburgh, where the approach to philosophy I think was the the very logically oriented uh, analytical school, right? Yes. But it was the existentialists and the phenomenologists, uh, people like Sartre and uh, Merleau-Ponty, who were really particularizing philosophy and applying it to lived experience, you know, things that normally weren't considered the domain of philosophy, right? Was that school of philosophy something you came to later? Yes, it, it was. So uh, when I was at the University of Pittsburgh, um, I became interested, and you're right, to characterize uh, the University of Pittsburgh in this way, a sort of logical analysis, uh, again, what's called analytic philosophy, uh, heavy emphasis on language. At that time, I was interested in what's called sense data theory. So I was interested in things like, what does it mean to say that a cup appears red or an apple appears red or green, or, or why does a flower smell as it smells like it does, right? The idea is to unpack what is our relationship epistemologically with those properties. How do we know that they're a part of the object itself? What happened was, after Pitt, I came back to Philadelphia and fell under uh, the, the mentorship of um, James G. Spady, who is a very prominent cultural theorist, and he and I would read for hours. He introduced me to, to all kinds of cultural theorists, all kinds of some African-American philosophers, and began to open up for me this way in which to think about the social and the political. So even there, I started to move toward Jean-Paul Sartre and, and sort of the, the important things that he had to say about bad faith and what he had to say about um, finite existence and, and, and our sense of meaning. But it was largely due to the influence of James G. Spady, who got me really interested in this idea of sort of bringing philosophy back down to earth. And of course, when I went to Yale, then there was this switch also to this idea of hermeneutics and the philosophy of science. So there I began to ask questions about why is it that we claim that uh, electrons exist and what does it mean to say that they, they exist? Under what conditions do they appear? And so there was a natural movement from hermeneutics and interpretation and questions of what are the conditions for bringing about our understanding of uh, certain scientific claims to the idea of what does it mean to be black in America, right? That became a hermeneutic project for me. So, yeah, when did race become part of your sort of philosophical project? Sure. I think that thematically and explicitly it came during the time that I fell under the influence of James G. Spade, I say fell under because it's being thrown into this uh, incredible <laughs> influence, I think it was during that time when I began to read uh, more um, and being introduced to more African-American philosophers. But in terms of the felt reality of racism, I think the, the situation with the white school teacher who you know, 
truncated my body in a certain kind of way by saying, you know, you shouldn't aspire to become a pilot. You should settle for being a, a bricklayer. Uh, the later experience that I had when my mom had bought me a telescope. So I was doing what many would say is, you know, is impossible. This should not have happened, right? You shouldn't have a black teenager looking through a telescope. Well, one day I was coming down the stairway uh, with my telescope and a white police officer uh, looked in and saw me with the telescope and he said, uh, quote, man, I almost blew you away. Meaning he almost shot me because he thought that the telescope was a weapon. So there's a way in which, although later I came to thematize and think about race philosophically in my life under the influence of, of James Spady and then uh, Yale through the guise of hermeneutics, in my own sense of embodiment, I had already knew what it meant to be less than. I knew what it meant to be, um, to be prejudged as a criminal or as someone who's up to no good. You know, I, I don't think any fiction writer could craft a better allegory than the story you just told. A telescope and a weapon and the context that turns one into the other. Yeah, I, I, I think that it was part of a function of, of, of several things operating, right? It was Richard Allen Projects, right, where, you know, the projects had already been seen as, you know, economically depressed. Individuals that were seen there as being depressed, living in the ghetto, living in squalor. I mean, so when the police officers saw me, he could only see what was the site of pathology, right? But it didn't mean that I was a problem. It meant that he was a problem because, <laughs> because he couldn't see beyond his own white gaze. Uh, you're reminding me of uh, passages that you've quoted and, of course, many other people have from James Baldwin who said these things probably as brilliantly as they could possibly be said. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, Baldwin's brilliant there. Baldwin says that for some reason, um, you know, white people have a need to hang on to the term nigger. He says that I don't understand it, but they do. And he says, for, for all my life, I've always known that I wasn't a nigger. And then he goes on to say, uh, I'm not the problem. He says, I give you your problem back. You're the nigger baby. It isn't me. I found a clip from a TV program um, from the early 60s with uh, James Baldwin saying something very similar to what you just said. I, I might as well play it right now. We have invented the nigger. I didn't invent him. White people invented him. I've always known, I had to know by the time I was 17 years old, what you were describing was not me, and what you were afraid of was not me. It had to be something else. You had invented it. So it had to be something you were afraid of. You invested me with it. Now, that's so. No matter what you've done to me, I can say to you this, and I mean it. I know you can't do any more, and I've got nothing to lose. And I know, and I've always known. No. And really always. That's part of the agony. I've always known that I'm not a nigger. But if I am not the nigger, and if it's true that your invention reveals you, then who is the nigger? So, so George, what is going on there? Why have black people from the inception been this target for all of these white projections, whether it's you know, these, these cliches about being, you know, sort of more animalistic or not being intellectual or being highly sexual or being exotic. 
uh, being scary, but also very alluring. You know, all of this stuff, all this fantasy action. Do you have a theory? Um, I have. I have a suggestion. <laughs> okay. Okay. Uh, a, a suggestion, a, an informed suggestion. So yes, I I I think that at the heart of whiteness there is an emptiness. At the heart of whiteness there is vacuity, which means then that. Um, whiteness is a form of self-alienation. And what does that mean? It means that um, whiteness is a parasite upon a host. Uh, it, is par- it has a parasitic relationship to black bodies. So in some sense, we m- one might raise this larger question, what is it about white bodies such that they need to de facto segregate themselves from black people and people of color? Well, if it's, if it's the case that whiteness is already a self-alienated category, then what happens is to be close in proximity to black people is to remind white people that black people are there. By that, I mean as a people who have been oppressed precisely by those white individuals. So there's a way in which whites want to distance themselves from black bodies um, in order to, I would argue, forget that oppression not to see that malaise, not to see those forms of degradation that white privilege and white power are responsible for. While at the same time, white people will often project onto black bodies a certain kind of animalism, a certain kind of coolness, right? Where whites then want to mingle Mm -hmm. with black bodies. Mm -hmm. But this mingling becomes a reinscription of white supremacy, right? It becomes a reinscription of stereotypifying the black body according to white desires. So so I want to argue that there is a way in which whiteness has its logic. Its logic is binary. So whiteness needs the other in order to survive. Now, you have said a mouthful there. Let's see if we can dive in and explore it a little more. You know, on the one hand, you can certainly posit uh, and I think make a good argument that one thing that's going on is that from the beginning, at least of the, you know, the slavery era, that Europeans, uh, white Americans had a guilty conscience. They knew they knew what they were doing, ran against every principle that they gave lip service to, uh, every principle of their religion, every principle of their democratic beliefs, if they had them. And so once you've done something and you feel guilty about it, often you blame the victim, right? Mm, I mean, sure. You have to make the victim bad because otherwise you're bad. Absolutely. Otherwise you're really bad. So that's one thing I think you alluded to. But then you talked about something called white vacuity. Uh, what is that exactly? Uh, I mean, let, let me speak to one thing in a more broader sense. John Cassian in the 4th century, he kept these uh, diaries where he would write about the experiences that various monks were having. And he has this entry where he says that one of the monks felt as if it was being attacked by demons. And what was interesting, this is the 5th century, the demons that were attacking him had Negroid features. So he would say, um, you know, this demon appeared to me and it was an ill-smelling Ethiop. Mm. So there's a way in which, even at that period, um, blackness was being constructed in this very demonic sense, in the sense in which it was the very opposite of the divine. Right. And you also find this, of course, later in uh, thinkers from uh, Immanuel Kant to David Hume to, to Hegel. You get these caricatures or you get these very 
um, racialized images of the black body, but the black body in relationship to the white body. Um, once you get to the United States in the 1600s, there's this really clear sense in which whiteness begins to evolve as a property that individuals have in order to distance themselves from people of color. And you get this right after Bacon's rebellion in 1676. After that period, you get certain kinds of ways in which black bodies are not allowed to do things that white bodies are allowed to do. Right During this period in Virginia, a law was put forward if a white woman was to have a child by a black man, that that child would spend 20-plus years in a kind of um, some form of slavery, uh, or she would be kicked out of the dominion of Virginia. Right? And during this time, other uh, indentured whites were given rights that black people weren't given. So even indentured Europeans that came over, in some sense, if you will, became white, in relationship to the black body, again, establishing that kind of parasitic relationship. Hmm. So to say that whiteness is a category of the vacuous is to say, what does whiteness mean positively, right? I mean, many uh, critical whiteness theorists will say, what is whiteness? And they'll say, oftentimes, whiteness is constructed as not that. Or, or as the baseline condition. That's right. So, so, so my, my argument is that whiteness function as what I'd like to call the transcendental norm. And that's just a fancy way of saying that whiteness is the condition for the possibility of other races being con- constituted in a certain kind of way. So if you're not white, then you're different or you're deviant exactly. or you're raced or you're named. Yeah, yeah. Right? You're of color. You're, you're touched. By... That, that, that's right. So in this case, then you would think about BET, which is black entertainment television, but we never talk about wet. We never talk about white entertainment television precisely because white entertainment television is the category of the human. And and that's why I think to a lot of people, maybe the whole emergence of something called whiteness studies almost seemed kind of funny because uh, isn't whiteness studies everything that's in the curriculum already? It was black studies that were excluded, like black history, and that's why you had to create a category for black studies. But but why a new category for whiteness studies when, in fact, the uh, academy has always been white? Sure. No, that's, that's, that's a good point. Uh, and I think you're right. For social political reasons, we have to have, um, you know, BET, Black Entertainment Television. We have to have Black History Month, right? We have to have a black student union. Um, believe it or not, there are white students uh, in 2005 who will argue that we should have a white student union or that we should have um, a White History Month, which is quite incredible, right? But they, but they argue this. Um, I think that um, the need to mark our existence is very important because whiteness is, in fact, this unmarked category. It is the transcendental norm, right? And so marking our identity is also a way of critiquing whiteness as normative, right? So critical whiteness studies doesn't um, leave whiteness as it is, right? The idea is to name it, to point it out, and to critique it and possibly undo its insidious operations. Mm. Now, getting back to um, the whole history of, of white projections onto to other races, or even the invention of categories like other races, I always had a sort of simplistic idea um, that maybe this had to do with, you know, at some point in the history of Europe, there was a splitting of the self, probably prompted by religion, where the higher self was spiritual, it was not physical, uh, it was 
plagued by temptation and sin, but it had to push all that away. You had to elevate yourself. And where are you going to push all that stuff? Mm. Uh, and a lot of that stuff got foisted onto other peoples, right? Sure, sure. Who, who came to signify those baser instincts, right? No, ab- absolutely. Well, this is why I'm, I'm, I'm picking up uh, literally on this notion of the Manichaean divide. Uh-huh. Uh, Manichaeanism um, being this religious uh, view that has it that um, there are two sides or forces in the universe. There's a, there's a dark and there's a light. The dark is evil and the light is good. I mean, think about Star Wars here, right? Um, Darth Vader, the notion of Darth as dark. Um, right. Darth Vader is dressed in black. And Luke Skywalker, I mean, he's the Skywalker, right? He walks in the sky. Exactly. And, and, and Luke actually means light, if you look up the etymology. Um, so my argument, yes, is that there's a way in which the Enlightenment, uh, the, the Enlightenment, it's, it's telos, its purpose is to bring light. But to bring light where? Well, to bring light and to take light to these darker places, right? These places that are perhaps exotic, mysterious, and I think by extension, evil. Uh, but this division, I would argue, uh, is, as you've argued, is very much linked to uh, the idea of a certain kind of spirituality. If you look at the work of Richard Dyer, he argues that whiteness or white people, the category attempts to be so universal that it attempts to disappear. Whites attempt to actually exceed embodiment. They attempt to right. get rid of all embodiment. Right. Well, then something's going to have to be done with that embodiment. Right? <laughs> exactly. Well, that embodiment then spells a profound kind of point of self-alienation, where then black bodies and bodies of color become nothing more than sites of, of the body, nothing more than sites of desire or of the flesh or of the promiscuous, right? I mean, and we, we get this problem when uh, the French of, uh, anatomist Georges Cuvier is dissecting uh, Sarah Bartman, uh, that very famous case of the hot and tot Venus, and where he's dissecting her and he sees her body as um, a body that is diseased. It has a hypertrophied labia minora, Ugh. and it has uh, steatopygia, which is, he used the word for, uh, which means it has a very large behind, right? But he sees these features as indicative of hypersexuality, right? Uh, rather than understanding her own individuality or seeing her body as part of a larger African cultural matrix and coming out of that matrix, in some sense, the very, um, the very part of him that speaks to a lower self gets, as you might put it, projects it onto Sarah Bartman's body. In that case, then, one might argue that Europe is in some sense split, right? It means that, and by extension, uh, the American white psyche is split and therefore needs the black body as criminal. So therefore, individuals like uh, Trayvon Martin or Tamir Rice or Jonathan Farrow or Renisha McBride, then they become opportunities for the white self to engage in a form of fortifying its own purity, Mm. fortifying Mm. its own power Mm. and its own uh, ethical standing. Well, yeah, and on a uh, sort of collective level, you remind me that you know Europe was constructing its own sense of a unified identity or at least unified national identities within Europe and one way you you band together is to identify something that you're not and you say uh look we're all the same because we're not that you know Absolutely but and of course and one can't deny that w- within Europe you have internal conflicts I mean one cannot deny this 
and you're right, I think we can think about that also as a form of, but I am not that, right? I mean, the concept of race comes out of Europe. And when we think about the ways then in which the black body becomes that body that is so diametrically opposed, there's a way in which that black body becomes the seat of all things dark, of all things black, mm-hmm. of all things untouchable, mm-hmm. right? And when you try, as as I think you're proposing, when you try to repress and externalize and uh, partition off a large part of your own self and foist it onto an entire other group of people, well, when you repress something, it becomes also forbidden fruit, right? Mm. So you've got the flip side of white hostility and oppression. You also have the fascination and the attraction. Absolutely. I don't think you can have the one without the other. Um, One subject... um, I've wanted to devote an entire program to is this strange history of white people imitating black people in various ways, mm. uh, whether it's, you know, minstrel shows and blackface or whether it's just appropriating black forms of expression uh, to make themselves cooler. Mm. Um, but what do you make of that, playing at being black characters of their own imagining? I think it speaks to Uh, this problem that we've pointed to already, it speaks to the paradox of the black body, where the black body is off-limits, it's ersatz, it's the untouchable, while at the same time, part of that same twisted logic is that this body is a body that I want to be close to. So in many ways, whites then get to live out a certain kind of fantasy of what it means to be black. And in essence, unleashing all of that repression, right? <laughs> but, but that becomes another problem, right? Because you're not really relating to black bodies. You're relating to your fantasy about what constitutes a black body. So I think that blackface is a form of caricaturing, dehumanizing black bodies, while at the same time the white body gets to be an instantiation or manifestation of blackness and thereby taking on a certain kind of vitality. And, and ironically, uh, a kind of freedom, right? Like disinhibition. So, so there's the idea of the black body as uninhibited, as a certain side of freedom, and to the extent that white people are able to imitate it, they get to be free also. They get to explore their sexuality, right? But if that's true, right, if it is predicated on that false construction of the black body, then it simply re-inscribes whiteness as the center and therefore regenerates the pathology. For sure, for sure. But there, but there is something to be said, I think, in this whole issue that you're raising, which I think is a fascinating uh, issue. There's a way in which we can talk about the black body as having a level of freedom and a level of understanding pain and suffering that white people in America don't experience. So that I would argue that the blues, for an example, jazz in terms of improvisation, or rap music as this profound way of articulating our pain, and again, back to the blues, a blues ontology that, that, that emphasizes movement, uh, not spaces, but movement and transcendence, right, and resistance. So there, there's ways in which black bodies have had to live with extraordinary, almost impossible modes of being in the world um, against the, you know, in terms of the problem of white supremacy. But through music, through forms of articulation, through forms of bodily performance, black people have been able to resist and not so much 
transcend as in completely get beyond the problems of white supremacy, because white supremacy is still alive, right? Well alive in 2015. But there are ways in which they were able to survive. By the way, let's let's get uh, more personal and maybe even into more uncomfortable territory. I noticed that uh, or I'm imagining that some listeners might be hearing me and saying, what's this, this guy doing? He's some kind of self-flagellating white guy uh, sitting here hearing statements like white vacuity and white emptiness and uh, just sort of going along with it. Sure. Now, you speak for yourself, but uh, I don't feel like you're talking about me in particular or every white person. Uh, you're talking about a larger sort of concept, aren't you? Sure, I am. Um, I, I, let, me, let, me, let me explain it this way. I mean, for me to talk about whiteness and race in America requires paresia. And paresia is a Greek word that means fearless speech or to say it all. But along with fearless speech, we also have to have fearless listening. So my argument is that for white people to even begin to hear what I'm saying, they have to be prepared to be vulnerable, which etymologically means to be wounded. So white people have to be prepared to undergo what I call a form of unsuturing, to allow an unsuturing literally, a kind, not literally, but a kind of cut that is allowed to happen in the very psyche and the souls of white people in order to hear the gift that black people have to give them. So even as I'm talking about a larger historical institutional phenomenon called whiteness and white power, I'm also speaking to white people in their everydayness the way in which they continue to live their lives according to white privilege, according to white power, according to having rights accorded to them in ways that they're not accorded to to black people, the way in which they get to move through the world as if that world belonged to them. So as a white man, for example, I'm not only, I'm speaking to you, but I'm also speaking to the structure of white supremacy. And I think we have to keep both of those in tandem. And what I appreciate about this dialogue is that you are, in some sense, right, able to hear me and to hear me in a way um, that doesn't close off or that doesn't run for shelter. Hmm. Now, I'm pretty alert to um, the rituals that white and black people engage in when they talk to each other and meet each other in many cases. And one of those rituals is the well-meaning white seeking absolution, from from a black person, I'm not a racist, you know. Uh, I'm not one of those bad white people. And please recognize this in me. And you tell the story. Um, I think you've probably told it multiple times, but I saw you tell it in a talk you gave at uh, Villanova about a. Um, I guess was it a job interview uh, at a oh, university? Yeah, sure, sure. And uh, you went prepared to talk about your curriculum vitae and your your work as a philosopher. But the guy who was interviewing you proceeded to pretty much monopolize the time telling you about how he was progressive on racial issues. Absolutely. (laughs) It was no, really, no inquiry about my publication record or what I would teach, my pedagogy. It was really an opportunity or space for this white philosopher to engage in a form of white purification, to distance himself from what he may have seen as the real white racists whom I might encounter later. Right, but he used my time, you see, for a space for self-confession or white self-confession. But I want to argue that when whites engage in that sort of process, um, it becomes a site for obfuscation, a site for further complicating what needs to be addressed. 
So I use the term tarrying, which I think is just a beautiful term, to tarry, which means to linger with one's own white supremacy. The way in which I think about this is that to be white and to be American is to be racist. Now, that's a hard claim for whites to accept, but let me explain what I mean by that. What I mean by that is that surely there's a distinction between, let's say, yourself and other whites who might be listening um, who are not the Klan or who are not skinheads. Fair enough. I mean, I have to grant that. But <laughs> instead of seeing that difference along those stark lines, I want to say let's think about the way in which the Klan and goodwill white people both exist under the umbrella of white supremacy. So that for me, at the end of the day, there are ways in which whites continue, whether it's at the bank getting mortgage or whether it's renting, right, where they get to rent at a lower rate, or whether it's uh, questions of employment. I mean, stats have it that if you have a white-sounding name, you're 50% more likely to get a job interview. Uh, and if you have a, a, a police record or criminal record compared to a black who doesn't have a criminal record, there's a slight chance that you might still get the job, right? Or I'm followed in the store and you're not. So I want to argue that the best that white people can achieve in this country is to be anti-racist racists. And by that, I mean, at the end of the day, whites in America are racist because of the system in which they live. So you're embedded in systems of racism. And also, I argue that white people can't know the depths of their own racism. Perhaps we can say more about that. So while they can resist racism, they can't, as it were, undo in some total arrived sense of anti-racism. You know, I, I'm skeptical of a lot of the sort of templates that we impose on, on these questions. And one that bothers me a lot is the use of the term racist or racism as a broad brush when it can mean so many different things in so many different degrees mm. and gives rise to a feeling that this is some kind of sin that either you are tarred with or that you somehow purge yourself of. And it gets everybody into, a, I mean, I shouldn't say everybody, but it gets a lot of, certainly gets a lot of white people mm. into a kind of frenzy mm. to purify themselves of this Absolutely. nasty, nasty thing that they've been accused of harboring. That's right. And what I want to say is that to be white in America is not to be somehow innately racist, right, in the way in which one uses innate, right, born, as it were, born with, right, somehow that racism is hardwired. That's a claim I don't want to make. But I'll give you this beautiful example uh, of how this works. Uh, I was teaching a course on critical whiteness studies, and there was a white uh, student in the back of the class, and we were talking about whiteness, and he had, he had understood the claim uh, that to be white in America is to be privileged, and to be privileged in America as white is to perpetuate forms of, of racial injustice. So he understood the systemic nature of white supremacy. But he made this gesture where he was rocking his arms back and forth, uh, and he was rocking his arms back and forth because he had just had this little baby with his wife, uh, who I think was three months old. And he was just rocking back and forth in this motion. He was saying, you know, Dr. Yancey, I understand what it means to be racist in a systemic sense, but what does this little daughter of mine have to do with any of this? And what I said to him uh, at that moment was, but will your little daughter ever find safety in black arms or in arms that are not white? At which point he stopped rocking and turned red and after class 
had to talk to me, and he said, you know, I only have one black friend, and that black friend isn't even close. Mm. So there was this moment where he was sort of saying, okay, I thought she, my, black, my white daughter, was innocent of this, but she will only know the safety of white arms. And in knowing the safety, only knowing the safety of white arms, the way in which she then begins to relate to the world, the way in which she sees people of color or black people as distant and not a form, uh, and not part of a kind of community, a kind of uh, mitzvah, a, a kind of being together. So there was this moment, this this sort of um, beautiful realization on his part that he was already participating in the perpetuation of white supremacy to the extent that he was creating this division between his who who his friends are and who his friends aren't. So this is why I ask my students to go home on the holidays and ask to raise the question, why are there so many white people sitting around the table during Thanksgiving? Why are there so many people who look like us sitting around the table during Christmas, right? Because there is this de facto segregation that's going on in our country. Uh, yeah, and of course, we're, we're born into a world uh, in which the landscape has already been carved out and we walk across it and there's no avoiding the contours of this landscape. Um, and we're surrounded by things that we, we revile, but they're still there. And they, they, they create a script for us when it comes to mm, racial interactions. Okay. You know? a- absolutely. So, so I'm interested, if you like, I like your, this language that you're using. I'm interested in the way in which these uh, trajectories are not only already carved out for us, but the way in which white people, in this case, continue to carve them out. Oh, yeah, right? yeah. And so I think you're right. Um, whites play out these scripts. I mean, take Tim Wise, for an example. Perhaps you've heard of him. He's a white uh, individual who talks about white privilege, who's written some books, uh, for an example, White Like Me. And Tim Wise, in other words, has been an anti-racist for years, right? But this is what happens. He goes to get on a plane, and he gets, he walks past the cockpit, and he sees that there are two black pilots sitting there. Uh-huh. And what happens, right, you may have heard me talk about this, he goes, my God, can these guys fly this plane? And he says that no matter what I knew to be the case was of little help. So here's a case where, if you like, epistemology or the theory of knowledge or the way in which he knew certain things to be the case was inadequate for addressing what, as it were, came up from the very bottom of his psyche, right? Which I call a site of opacity, meaning a site of density that can't be fully seen. Um. I certainly spend a lot of my time thinking about what it would be like to be black in a certain situation. Uh, mm. What if I had grown up black? What if I were mm. black right now talking to this cop? What if I mm. were black walking through this neighborhood? And, you know, there's a limit to what I can imagine, but I certainly do my best. But one thing I want to ask about that, one thing I, I can't fully grok is what it is like to have grown up in what seems like a crazy psychodrama uh, of someone else's devising. And we were talking about that earlier. All of the fantasies and projections that uh, white society has traditionally thrust on black people, can you offer me any insight on that? Like to, to be surrounded by this this imagery, these ritualized responses, whether it's people locking their car doors when you walk by, you've talked about that, or people trying to prove to you that they're good whites, 
or people being afraid for other reasons or any of the other um, strangely choreographed uh, sort of interactions. Uh, sure. What is, what is it like for you? So as a black male? Yeah. Uh, to be a black male in the United States in 2015 for me is to be terrified. It's to live on the very brink of having one's life taken. When I'm in the a company of white police officers now, uh, since 2012 up to 2015, there is a physiological change that I undergo. And by the way, I'm not giving this information out to, to, to be treated as a spectacle as I'm describing no. this. What I'm trying to communicate is at one level to white people and at the same time to black people. I'm saying to black people that you are not insane when you experience the dread, when you experience the angst of being black in America. And I'm saying to white people, you have this incredible privilege not to feel what I'm feeling. And no one says that you're not feeling angst or pain with regard to certain social problems. We're not denying that. But when it comes to race, to be black is to feel like a non-thing, is to be treated as a non-thing. It's to always be prepared to resist during that day. So Fanon says he wanted to come live into the world. It's such a beautiful word. It's L-I-T-H-E. And it means to move with effortless grace. I can't move through the world with effortless grace. I knew that when I brought my telescope downstairs and I was told that I was going to be blown away. That thought still haunts me to this day. So I think for me to be a black male in 2015 is not to move with effortless grace, but to calculate in a world to calculate how long will I be alive. And I feel that way with my own sons, that when they go out into the world, they may not come back because of white supremacy. And keep in mind, this doesn't have to be spectacular moments of devastation, like being shot by a police officer. It's also going to a store where uh, a white person refuses to touch your hand, or where your body gets profiled um, as you're walking through a store, or that I can't move quickly if I'm stopped by a police officer and, and grabbed from my, my wallet because it will become, my wallet will become transformed magically enough into a gun, right? It, it has to do with the way in which I'm a black philosopher and the way in which I'm treated or the way in which I'm perceived at, let's say, predominantly white APA conferences, right? It's the way I feel alienated at those conferences, American Philosophical Association conferences, where I am one of, you know, very few blacks, where I'm surrounded by a sea of whiteness. So this notion, the idea when Eric Gardner says, I can't breathe, for me, this notion, this concept of I can't breathe becomes not just sort of an existential cry for existence, or the, 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 the imminent loss of existence, but also the sense in which my daily existence is about breathing and the failure to breathe, right? The failure to uh, emerge within this American context as I live my life without facing uh, white racism. So that's what it means. It, it means to be um, in a context of dread, a context of terror. What is that to say about 2015? How do you communicate this to your children that you, right, you're supposed to be the strong one, but yet you have this incredible fear, which is not, by the way, paranoia, because the history of, of racism in the United States justifies that fear. How do you talk to your kids about this? It's hard. 
Um, I mean, every day, right, there's something new, right? There's the, the University of Missouri case, there's the Yale case, there's all of these cases that are coming up constantly, right? The way in which uh, black bodies are being mistreated, the way in which they're having both uh, literal and symbolic violence happen to them. So what I do is I, we, we watch the videos and we talk, right? But you see, this is the tragedy. I mean, we have to talk to our children in 2015 about how to comport themselves in the world, how not to run down the street even. I mean, children want to be free. This is something that they should all have. They should be able to live lives of, of gaiety and lives of, of, of fruitful living, right? But you have to tell your sons that you have to be careful, that you have to watch out, that you have to self-monitor your own body in the presence of white people, right? Can you imagine having a black child uh, where in the morning, rather than saying, you know, have a good day at school, uh, I'll see you soon, but saying, have a good day at school, but be careful, right, how you move, mm -hmm. how you walk. And then at the same time, in your own head, this little voice saying that I might not see that child, right, when he or she returns. Right? And that's not to even speak uh, about something called black-on-black -black crime, right, which is a whole other dimension, right? And it's amazing to me how white pundits will often attempt to obfuscate the problem of police brutality onto black bodies by switching the conversation to one on black on black crime. I think that whole phrase is very strange when held up to scrutiny, black on black crime. Mm. Uh, the implication is, by the way, you did it to yourself. Oh, absolutely. Right? right. You, the black oh, yeah. victim, well, well, it was one of your own that did it to you, and therefore it's your problem. What a strange way to address crime. No, it's to say, who's responsible for this? You are. And often the argument goes, well, look, if you're going to talk about white police officers uh, or those who are their proxies, as in the case of George Zimmerman, well, you ought to also talk about black-on-black -black crime. You guys have to talk about the ways in which you're killing yourself. Right, well, right. one, it's, we are concerned <laughs> about those issues. We've always been concerned about those issues. But when whites, let's say, you know, during the, the, the early 1900s, were killing each other, Right, there were provisions that were made for them. There were there were infrastructures were put into place, effective infrastructures that enabled them to stop killing each other. Right, we don't have the same kinds of infrastructures that are put in in place for black people. We don't have the same kind of investment, even under Obama's administration. So, it's my sense in which the black body is already being seen as savage. Right, it's mm. a savage body. This mm. is how it's expected to behave. Mm. Right, mm. and so therefore, any policy changes will be inconsequential, because what we're really talking about is the failure of people, of black people to be human. Mm. Yeah. Which, of course, is, is deeply pathological, not amongst black people, but of the kind of thinking that that, that, that view generates. You know, the, the constant uh, refrain here about black bodies and the way they're regarded reminds me of uh, Hurricane Katrina mm. and some of those scenes of folks who uh, had taken refuge on their roofs and, and helicopters were flying over, people in boats who were mostly black. And mm -hmm. I had this eerie sense uh, that somehow just almost embedded in the imagery was an idea that, oh, it's just black people, or, oh, this isn't quite as urgent. Yes. I just really had a palpable sense of that. 
Yes. Well, I think that that palpable sense was felt by you and so many other black people and maybe some white people who were allies in a certain kind of way, right? Uh, the way in which the nation uh, failed to act with a level of, uh, of, of, of urgency, right? Because there's the idea that um, black bodies don't matter, right? Hence, black lives matter, right? That, that, that whole movement. But why, why in 2015 are we saying black lives matter? I, I remember seeing so many images of black people during the 60s who were protesting during the civil rights movement. And you'd see them with, with signs that read, I am a man, as if somehow one has to articulate that. I'm thinking that that, you know, that phrase, black lives matter, and again, the I am a man signs of the old civil rights uh, demonstrations, there's a certain genius in the understatement. And I know that the Black Lives Matter um, phrase and movement has been grotesquely twisted by some people to mean, uh, oh, that only black lives matter. No, sure. it's exactly the opposite. It's, it's making this extremely modest statement that something that should be obvious and something that should go without saying needs right. to be said. And of course, the tragedy is precisely in the need to articulate. Yes, yes. And the phrase captures that. No, absolutely. The subtext is that there are those who don't think we matter mm -hmm. in the way in which we're treated. Mm -hmm. So it says that there are other lives that matter. So whites, many whites will often want to react to that and say, well, no, all lives matter. Well, we know that. Right. right? That's, right. that's a kind of slight <laughs> truism, if you yes. will. Right? Yes. Um, but the problem here is that we don't fall under the, the human. Exactly, all, right? exactly, so there are yes. many ways in which that quantifier yes. mis misses us, the all. Yeah, yeah. No, and I think that, like I say, is sort of the genius of the phrase. Is that it, Absolutely. It captures all of that meaning in uh, as short a statement as you could possibly make. Um, you know, you mentioned the University of Missouri and, uh, and also uh, demonstrations, um, you know, at Yale going on, uh, your alma mater, uh, at least where you got mm, yes, your master's. Yes, yes, um, sure. And there's a lot of talk these days about um, campus um, activism uh, around racial issues uh, that really sounds very much like the same kinds of things that were going on in the 70s and maybe 80s, but died down for a while. Is, is there something new about this moment, uh, or is this just a revival of something yeah. of unfinished business? Sure, that's, that's, a, good, that's a good way of putting it. Uh, I, think, I think, yeah, I, I like this idea of unfinished business. Uh, of course, the problem of black people, I said the problem of black people, the way in which black people feel this, uh, this way of being a problem is always already unfinished business because the uh, unfinished business of undoing white supremacy is ongoing, right? Uh, and what that would look like, I don't know. I tend to be a pessimist. Um, some might say an Afro-pessimist when it comes <laughs> to the idea of us reaching a state that's called post-racial, post-racist, or even post-whiteness, right? I don't see any end to that in my lifetime or in the lifetime of my children. So I think that, yes, it's unfinished business. I think, you know, in my interview with Cornel West uh, in The Stone, the New York Times, he talked about uh, a new fire, a new generation that's on fire, right? I think that, for the most part, many young black people uh, are seeing um, the legacy of white slavery, sorry, white slavery, white racism, manifest itself in this new way at the level of the prison industrial complex yes. and at the level of the ways in which black bodies are policed. Yes. So I think that what we're seeing then from young people is this new fire that's catching on, right, that says we refuse 
for this to continue any longer. So it's a different kind of fire, a different kind of energy, I think, than, let's say, your Al Sharptons or your Jesse Jacksons, right? This is truly a kind of, uh, from the grounds up, what might might call a kind of autochthonous movement, right, of young people um, strategizing on their own and coming up with their own creative ideas, their own embodied forms of demonstration and resistance. We're seeing their bodies uh, tell us a new narrative about what it means to be young, just as you ask me what it's like for me personally to be black in America, right? So I think, I think that's what we're saying, seeing rather. We're, we're seeing this incredible hunger from black people uh, to be recognized and to be seen uh, on their own terms, right? Not through the white gaze in this case. Yeah, and by the way, when I, um, when I asked you that question about what it's like, there was another dimension to my question, and I'd like to, to reintroduce that. Um, it's, it's about not just the, the very tangible experience of feeling in danger, of feeling threatened, but what about this long history of just being part of someone else's fantasy, like what I call the psychodrama or fever dream or morality play, this strange way in which from the beginning, and when, when I say that, I mean at least the beginning of, you know, of, of transatlantic slavery, if not before, mm. of colonialism, mm. that, that there's this strange way in which black people have just been cast in a, someone else's story, mm. you know, of having to, um, to live in that kind of nightmare yeah, sure. <laughs> of someone sure. else's uh, creation. That's a good point. I, I think that um, it comes across, um, for an example, when I'm at the movie theater, uh, Franz Fanon talks about this, how he encounters his body at the movie theater, uh, where there are certain images uh, that he sees, right? So the ways in which certain movies, for example, uh, Deuce Bigelow or The Heartbreak Kid, uh, starring a- a Adam Sandler, the ways in which black bodies or the way in which blackness is spoken about, discursively constructed through the white imaginary. So to be black and to to sit at a movie theater, which is, you know, something you go to enjoy, right? A movie. What happens when a stereotypical image comes across oh, the yeah. screen that is you, right? Yeah. Um, that is depicted as, as you. Well, there's this way in which one is living out an existence according to a narrative that one did not create for oneself. Right. So there's a way in which the black body undergoes what Du Bois says is a form of double consciousness. There's a way in which the black body undergoes a form of self-alienation, right? Now, that's, that's not to say that black people haven't created strategies, or I have not created strategies to resist that. But when one is bombarded with it every day, right, when one is living out the narrative, right, being trapped, as it were, by the narrative, because it's easy to say, well, I can resist that narrative, but that narrative can also have very deadly consequences when one is reacting to the white imaginary of a white police officer or George Zimmerman, who carries around the white gaze, right? So there's a way in which one becomes trapped in that imaginary. There's a way in which one lives in a twilight zone, if you will, right? From which one wants to awake, awaken, right? I don't want to be the living in the nightmare that white people are having. Yeah. So, you know what I mean? Yeah. So if we take that further, right, think about Socrates, who argues that the Athenians wanted to remain asleep, and he was a gadfly, literally someone who, who stings, uh, something that stings horses. In some, way, some sense, right, what I want is for white people to wake up, right? I want them to wake up from a nightmare in which I'm trapped, mm-hmm. but in which they mm-hmm. too are playing a role, mm-hmm. right? And the question becomes, once you wake up, there's going to be a reality that you have to face, 
an emptiness that you have to face, that you are living a dream world, that you are living according to a phantasmatic, living within a phantasmatic sphere, right, that had no grounding whatsoever. And then that becomes the moment of crisis. That's when white people are going to fall in a state of crisis. But when you're in a state of crisis, there are two ways of handling it. Either you medicate it or you let it happen. We live in a culture in which we say, let's medicate. When someone's in crisis, we medicate it. I'm arguing that when whites get to that point where they become in crisis about their own identities, we ought to let that crisis play itself out. <laughs> so we shouldn't say, you know, when the individual is crying, we shouldn't say everything's going to be all right. I don't want to give white people hope, although that sounds so counterintuitive, because white people can take hope and run with it, right? Hope can be a way of obfuscating the need to tarry longer with one's own embedded racism, right? So, so I think that you're right when you talk about this nightmare, right? It's, it's not just that um, one is faced with this constant threat, but one is also having to live according to a narrative that one did not create and feeling trapped in it. And this is why black people have created counter-narratives. This is why we have created what's called or have developed and nourished the counter-black gaze as a way of fighting against that. But which dominant narrative plays out in America? It's still the dominant white narrative of the black body as a problem and as white people as those who can solve that problem. Uh, George, does, does that get at more of what you? Yeah, definitely, absolutely, absolutely. We've we've talked a little bit about the way that white people perceive black people in all of these sometimes pre-structured, pre-scripted ways, and um, I think how difficult it often is for people to get beyond that uh, mm. because that terrain has already been carved out, and uh, it has a resiliency, as you say. It it just has nine lives, you know. Each mm. time we seem to make progress, the old stuff comes back in, in new forms. Mm. Um, I'm, I'm kind of interested, again, in your experience. What sort of psychological experience do you have when you're first meeting white people? Do you have some, some preconceptions that you have to work through? Oh, yeah, good, good question. Um, I, too, come to, to white bodies with certain kinds of assumptions, but they're not the same way. They're not predicated, I would argue, on lies. They're predicated on the history of white supremacy and the ways in which white people live their lives out. I don't come with a kind of Procrustean, if you like, uh, image that imprisons them, right, according to myths, through the history of thinking about the white body as demonic, et cetera, et cetera, right? But I come to that body um, offering the possibility that it will present itself differently, that it will open up, that it will become a site of vulnerability. Uh-huh. But... I noticed that the encounter you just described, there's still a lot of weight on your shoulders to be an enlightener. I've been critiqued on this view that my, my argument has always been that, uh, well, not has always been, but my argument recently is that black people have a gift to give to white people, right? The gift that I'm referring to is the gift of double consciousness, because black people have been the objects of oppression in such a way that they have insights into the power of whiteness, just as women because they are victims of male supremacy, develop a certain kind of epistemological understanding of our sexism that we ourselves don't understand. So you're right, there is this paradox. I seem to be saying on the one hand that I come as the bearer of a gift, Mm -hmm. while at the same time the object of their vitriol, an object of their hatred, an object of their uh, false narrative, right? 
and again, I've been critiqued that I do seem to push this kind of paradoxical view that it still seems to be on my shoulders, but it's on my shoulders because I have to live, right? It's a gift that it's not simply about them, but it's a burden that I have to carry for my children and, the, and other black children and children of color. You were raised uh, in a deeply religious family. Uh, mm. You had an uncle, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, who was a minister. That's right. Grandfather was almost a minister, was a deacon. Yep. Your mom was, who, who raised you was, you know, very much a church-going person. Absolutely. Um, and I'm sure you were quite a believer. And uh, you have a wonderful little anecdote in that essay we talked about earlier, which, by the way, um, was in a very interesting book that you edited, where philosophers talk about themselves, their own lives, you being one of them, and your essay was called Between Facticity and Possibility. But yes. uh, the anecdote I'm, I'm uh, remembering here is one in which you, as a kid, asked your mom if you should pray for the devil yeah. <laughs> uh, because you were worried uh, the devil, yeah. maybe the devil could be a better person. Yeah, right, right. So, uh, so, now, yeah, so, now so, I don't want to so, make any equation between the devil and white people here. <laughs> No, uh, although, although, of course, the uh, early Malcolm X would have said that, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> Elijah uh, Muhammad, his, certainly. <laughs> yeah, through, through the Nation of Islam early on, right? But, you know, of course, Malcolm was also speaking to, I think, um, the idea that uh, who were the white people that he was encountering, right? What was the, the system of white supremacy that he was encountering? Uh, now, whether or not, you know, I think in his, the myth of Yaqub or the Yaqub's history, there is a kind of essentialization of the, of the white body as de- demonic. But yeah, absolutely. Historically, the, the white yeah. body has been, let's say, um, certainly, certainly a, a site of terror toward uh, non-white bodies, and sometimes even "quote unquote" white bodies or not not so white yet bodies. Right. right so right. yeah, there was this moment in which um, you know I was saying, "Now I lay me down to sleep at child's prayer," and uh, I asked my mom. I was about ten years old, and I asked my mom, um, "Is it okay to pray for the devil?" And of course, she was completely thrown by this. Because, you know, already I was exhibiting these very peculiar ways of being. For example, I was very obsessed at the time also with death. And uh, I remember telling my mother that I wish I wasn't um, because I have to at some point not be. So there was something about coming to learn that we will cease to exist at some point that was very traumatic to me, didn't make sense to me that we would we only came here to die. But I think retrospectively, what I was doing uh, is exhibiting this philosophical wonder. But not just that. There was something specific about this, this young black boy growing up who was being taught uh, about love, uh, about agape, and so on and so forth, but yet who wanted to put it into practice at a very young age in a certain kind of way, right? So why not pray for the devil, it seems to me, right? You, you guys have given me the tools <laughs> with which to think about the world. Well, it seems to me, given the way in which the devil became this sort of entity, the way in which the, the, the sort of uh, exegesis of the Bible that they accepted, well, the devil was this fallen angel. So it seemed to me, at 10, my prayer might help. But you, and you can only imagine now, right, theologically, how robust this was, right, this kind of, this kind of claim. Um, but I think it spoke to my burgeoning philosophical sensibilities, and I think it also spoke to this kind of mood that I had, to use Heidegger's term, a kind of mood that shaped the way in which I am in the world, right? So I'll often ask my students to think about this. What if Obama... Uh, were to, you know, give a national address where he said, 
um, we love ISIS or we love Osama bin Laden. I mean, what, what would that have looked like, right? What would that have communicated? And of course, the idea is not to condone the acts, right? But what would it have meant to say that he too is like us? He is someone's child. He is someone's son. He is someone's cousin, right? And that we love him nonetheless. I mean, for a politician to even begin to um, adopt that kind of discourse uh, would be so radical that we as a nation wouldn't know how to handle it. Oh, we would, uh, we would know. We'd impeach him forthwith. <laughs> Absolutely, right? So, so there's this way in which I think that um, I encourage my students to try to have the same kind of sensibility, to have the same kind of mood that disrupts the world, that disrupts their everyday lives, to think about the fact that you are finite and that we may not come this way ever again. And that, that still to me becomes a very powerful philosophical problem and existential problem, that it's possible that the universe produced us and at one point we will no longer exist, right? And there may not be anything else. Our faith aside, this might be it. And if that's the case, then what are the demands on us, right? What kind of lives do we want to live? What kind of lives must we live? If, in fact, we are so unique that we will never come this way again. You know what I'm saying? Mm. So for a 10-year-old, that was a hell of a burden to carry. You know, I mean, many children think about death, right? They see someone die, and it's, it becomes a kind of sociological phenomenon. I mean, we're all going to die at some point. But for me, death has always been this very personal uh, sense in which I will die, not just my mother or a sister or a friend, but I must die. The very self that is thinking about that will be obliterated at some point, right? And of course, again, faith aside, that could be it. And if that's the case, what message ought to come out of that finitude? Well, that central insight and that wonderment at mortality has probably um, caused more than one person to uh, forego a career as a bricklayer and become... <laughs> A philosopher instead. <laughs> Absolutely, right? And, and that's what I want. To, I mean, what I want to do for my students is to show them, one, I'm a black philosopher, right? We constitute about 1.1% of the profession. So I want to show them that as black people, we can imagine, we can dream, we can think about the existence of God, we're concerned about death, and not just the death at the hands of police, but death as an existential problem. Uh, and I want them to see that, that, you know, we are not just black. I mean, we're certainly that, and that's very meaningful, a meaningful category for us. But we're always more than that. But I'm also the, the human being who will one day face death. I'm also the human being who is struggling to understand whether God exists. I'm also the, the, the human being who's trying to understand the meaning of love, right, and the possibility of, of what it means to be human, and indeed what it means to go beyond our current conception of what we mean by the human. Well, I'd like to leave my listeners with a similar sentiment that you um, expressed in um, near the end of that essay we've been talking about, that autobiographical essay. Would you read it for us? This brings me to the beginning. I am a black raciated male born in a racist white America. I am suspicious of eyes that fail to see this. I still remain situated between facticity and possibility. There are times when I am invisible and other times when I am hypervisible. I have even been perceived as a threat. I am the child of some poor black souls who endured the Middle Passage. I am the son of parents who've experienced Jim Crow firsthand. I am a witness to and survivor of ghetto life, a Richard Island Projects kid. 
I've seen madness and beauty unspeakable. I've learned how to be a possibility, to negotiate and say no to those who attempt to define me and confine me to a single memory, a moment in time, or fact of circumstances. I'm not sure why, but I no longer pray for the devil. I continue to be startled by the fact that I am. I continue to be passionate about philosophy of religion, whether God exists or not, the meaning of human existence, life, the meaning of my existence, African-American modes of being, cosmology, and still am greatly philosophically troubled and puzzled by the inevitability of my own death. Well, George, that makes two of us. Okay. (laughs) Good. George Yancey is professor of philosophy at Emory University. His many books include The Philosophical Eye, Personal Reflections on Life in Philosophy. That's the one we heard him reading from just a moment ago. As well as Black Bodies, White Gazes, Pursuing Trayvon Martin, and Look, a White. I'm Robert Polly. This has been the 7th Avenue Project. I'll be back on the air next week. And you can always listen online at our website, 7thAvenueProject.com, or just about any podcast app. (laughs) 